0: Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi, I'm Sean Callahan, And I'm Mark Shank. So, this is our final episode for 2019, Christmas special if you like. And we have something special for everyone. Uh, uh, someone I think you really enjoy. I'm going to throw it over to Mark. Tell us all about it, man. Well,
1: a little while ago I was very fortunate to sit down and spend an hour with John Scully. Now, many people will remember John Scully for uh, his work time at PepsiCo and uh, the Pepsi Challenge, uh, his time at Apple when he worked alongside Steve Jobs, and much more recently um, in kind of uh, venture capital, or, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, very big into medical technology and uh, improving the world using using technology. So. Uh, John sat down and very generously shared a whole bunch of experiences about things that have helped shape who he was. And uh, the first story that he shared, oh, and we're going to share five of these stories. Yeah, right. That's going to be great. Talk about each of them as they happen. Uh-huh. But I guess there's a there's there's a big theme right. uh, around today's episode and the, and the experience that John shares, and that is the importance of thinking differently and how you can get insight that makes a huge difference. So that'll be a bit of a theme. So. We'll talk about, we'll share each story from John, then Sean and I will have a quick chat as we usually do, what we like about it, how you can use it,
0: and how to make it even better. And at the end, we'll do a bit of a wrap. And really, you know, these, these stories are going to be ones you can put straight into your pocket, right? These are stories you can retell. And uh, so we look forward to, to sharing with you. So.
1: Okay, here's the first story. It starts way back in 1967.
2: One of the stories that has meant a tremendous amount to me in my life was when I was a young MBA. I had been working after the Wharton Business School at an advertising marketing firm in New York City. I had progressed well. I had become a vice president of the agency. I was working on several consumer package good accounts. and. In one in particular, I had had the chance to uh, do the analytical analysis of the AC Nielsen uh, market research for the Coca-Cola company. And it turned out uh, when I was 27 years old um, that marketing in those days was being done uh, really on an outsource basis by advertising and marketing firms. Very few companies had their own marketing departments other than maybe a group in charge of PR or advertising. So I got an opportunity to uh, join uh, Pepsi Cola Company as their first MBA. Uh, They weren't quite sure what to do with me. And a lot of my friends couldn't understand why I would give up a job as a young vice president uh, of a well-known New York advertising firm to go work for the Pepsi Cola Company. At that time, Pepsi-Cola was outsold 10 to 1 in 50% of the US by Coca-Cola, and it was looked at as a very distant number two brand to Coca-Cola company in the United States. The first assignment I was given when I joined Pepsi uh, was to go into a training program because I was the first MBA that Pepsi had ever hired. Uh, They put me on a route truck. This was in 1967. They put me on a a route truck in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They had me work in in the bottling plant. I would get up uh, in the early hours of the morning to uh, help wash bottles, to refill the returnable bottles. Uh, I'd be sent out to supermarkets to reset uh, shelves with new packages of Pepsi Cola in the middle of the night. Uh, That's because there'd be no uh, consumers who we would get in the way of uh, during the shopping hours. And then after four months I was sent to Phoenix, Arizona, did something similar except there it was hot in the summertime and I was put in charge of putting signs up on the roofs of uh, buildings in the uh, section of town which uh, in order to get Pepsi into the stores, uh, you had to repair the roofs as well as put the signs up. So we would have to work in the hot sun and, and uh, it was grueling work. Uh, And then I was sent off to Las Vegas, do something similar. Uh, And then finally, I was sent to Milwaukee, uh, where later in the year, it was starting to get cold, and we'd have to drive the trucks in the snow. And uh, I'd have to work out at a fitness club to get strong enough to uh, take the uh, bottles of eight-ounce returnable Pepsi, sometimes six to seven cases, down the steps into the taverns. So by this time, uh, my friends in New York thought I had uh, made an absolutely stupid decision. They said, why would you go and and take a job like that? You have an MBA, you're a vice president, uh, and now you're uh, a truck driver. And what I learned, because I've always had an insatiable curiosity that whatever task they gave me, I was always trying to learn as much as I could from it. So how were bottles uh, brought back to the plant and Uh, cleaned and refilled and then taken out? Uh, How many cases would we sell in a store when we reset the shelves in the middle of the night? Why did we have to reset the shelves? Why weren't the shelves right the first time? And I was learning the business from the ground up. As it turned after I uh, finished my training program of six months, I was put into the market research department and no one quite knew what I was supposed to do. So I would just go read the files and I read as much as I could of anything that I could about uh, Pepsi-Cola and soft drinks. And then I got uh, uh, put in charge of working on uh, product development in the research labs. Uh, again, getting jobs that no one else wanted. So I learned a lot about how beverages were formulated and, and different sweeteners. So now it's about two years later and uh, it turns out that Uh, saccharin was banned. Saccharin was a sweetener that was used for Diet Pepsi and other diet drinks. And it turned out that the uh, company uh, wanted to have somebody uh, take responsibility for doing the reformulation of Diet Pepsi with a different sweetener and develop the marketing and sales plan to replace the old Diet Pepsi with new uh, reformulated Diet Pepsi. So I was given the job. In, in parallel to that, uh, while I was doing that, um, uh, I got to be the spokesperson in front of the board of directors, explaining what the plan was. And so suddenly, my profile went up. Uh, uh, it turned out on the day that the saccharin was was banned, that the CEO of Pepsi was out of the country, so was the CEO of Coca Cola. So I was drafted to go on the Walter Cronkite TV show and be the spokesperson on. Uh, why saccharin could be replaced with another sweetener uh, cyclamates, And suddenly I was getting attention from around the uh, industry because they said, who is this young man, John Scully? And in parallel, McKinsey and company had been brought in to help Pepsi rethink its whole organization for uh, marketing and sales. And so the outcome of all of this was that uh, we successfully launched the uh, new version of Diet Pepsi with a new sweetener and I was drafted in um, to be the new uh, marketing vice president of Pepsi Cola Company. Uh, I was only in the company two years at that point. I had uh, obviously been way over my head to get such a job. They used to call me a high wire act because I had no particular qualifications to be a marketing vice president. You know, I'm now 29 years old. And uh, that was my big break and so, Uh, As I look back on it, I said, I was given a a job that most people thought was a terrible demotion and a diversion from what I had been doing. But during that time, uh, I was taking advantage of my curiosity and my willingness to work extremely hard. And I learned so much because instead of learning about um, the soft drink industry just through a spreadsheet or just sitting in meetings with staff people, I learned it from the ground up, actually doing work, uh, getting my hands uh, dirty.
0: Right, what an experience! God, it's all those all those dirty jobs, right? You know that people people have to do. And God, John had a, a whole litany of uh, examples there, didn't he, in that story? Absolutely. And I think that was one of the things that I liked about that story was he gave five examples of awful jobs that he had. Yeah, and, but the lovely thing is that, you know, he came into it with a purpose, you know, like he was not seeing them as, as uh, you know, sort of dirty jobs in a sense. He was seeing them as learning opportunities where, while, but while his friends were sort of going, what are you doing, John? Yeah, he what, what do you do? You 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 got an MBA. You were vice president of the agency. What are you doing in PepsiCo doing these shitty jobs? And now you're a truck driver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right.
1: Washing bottles. Yep. And of course, and that one of the things that the points that he made is that uh, he he was trying to learn. He spent a whole bunch of time learning. And so uh, one of the things I
0: like about it is that he invested that time. Yes. In the actual story, uh, I thought it was good that he kept reminding us his friend's perspective so you know like he he described a couple of those jobs and then he you know sort of threw in his friend's perspectives of what are you doing John you know you should should you really be doing that and then later on in that story he does it again and I think this amps up the that feeling of like you know are you crazy mate like what are you doing with your t- your time here and of course this enables him to sort of you know, sort of draw through, I think. And you'll find in the, all the stories that he tells, this sits as a really nice foundation, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. And one of the things that all those experiences would have given him is a whole bunch of stories that he could then use when he was sitting in the, meet, in the boardroom uh, uh, introducing new, new ways of thinking about the business because he had all those experiences to draw, all those stories that he could share.
0: Yeah, it was a, it's a great tactic isn't it like if you're running any business the first thing you know a senior person should do is get in amongst it so you have a couple of those real life experiences so you can actually share an anecdote it's hard to share an anecdote if all you got was, well I was looking at my spreadsheet and you know I saw this happen you know it's not quite going hit, to hit the mark is it uh, not not anywhere near as much
1: as at 11pm in in Pittsburgh when we were stacking shelves
0: this is what I saw yeah Exactly, it makes so, all the difference. It makes a huge. So, so what about applications of that particular story? Well, I mean, the one that stands out for me is, uh, you know, by by doing those those jobs, you get insight into the business. You know, things. and and, you know i bet you anything a lot of those insights of course doesn't doesn't come to you straight away you you do the jobs of stacking the shelves or washing the bottles or you know taking you know those you know sort of things down the stairs to actually um you know the bottles down the stairs to give them to the taverns all that sort of stuff you do that but it's probably in light of some problem that's faced back later on that the insight hits you right but i think that's for me if i was going to tell that story I would start off with this idea of, you know, you sort of have to create the conditions for insight. Yeah. And, of course, uh, another application of that
1: story, in in addition to the insight one, is just the importance of thinking differently. And as we said, this is kind of the theme through the whole... All five of these stories is the insight and the thinking differently. Yeah. Um, So John finished by saying... uh, He finished that particular story by saying he learned it from the ground up, doing the work, getting his hands dirty understanding the business yeah and I think that's where that that insight comes from
0: Yeah. well this course this is the old Tom Peters idea of management by walking around really and similar but not exactly the same but yeah he had these concrete experiences
1: I, I, I like the way that you said the Tom Peters uh, concept of managed by walking around because uh, in 1979 when I did my first degree yeah um, tom peters wasn't on the scene but management by walking around absolutely well, was. well maybe
0: he was just uh, quoting someone
1: else well, it's yeah. a great idea he certainly made it, it popular didn't oh he? yeah totally yeah so um, the how would we make that story even better i guess we'll just aim for like for five one stories, idea one
0: idea well you know how we like visual elements right and one of the nice visual elements i had listening to that story was him taking you know the crates of soft drink down the flight of stairs you know he had to go to the gym right to bulk himself up to be able to do this so i thought that was a nice little uh, touch but to me that's a visual moment so you know i would like to probably see a couple more of those visual moments in other elements of those dirty jobs that he was doing you know stacking the shelves or washing the bottles you know there must have been things that happened that could be Little moments you can tell to bring
1: that life. Yeah, kind of zoom in on a couple of the specific instances. Yeah, and and just amplifying that. One of the things that I thought. One of the things I wanted to know when I was listening to, him, I, right at the start when he changed from being a marketing vice president in New York to a truck driver for Pepsi, when he had the offer to be Pepsi's first NBA, what happened? I re- I really you want to, to know, know that. Yeah. What was the decision making process? And so just for for anybody listening to this, one of the really important, one of the useful things uh, to improve your stories and to make them even better is to to ask people, what do they want to know more of? So listen to the questions that people ask, because that gives you some insight into the things they want to understand more of that you can zoom in on. Yeah, that's good. Well, what do
0: you reckon? Shall we get into the next story?
1: Story number two. So the second story that John shared was some of his experiences around the things that you need to do to take on a much bigger competitor and how you need to be innovative to do that.
2: After I became marketing vice president, uh, one of the first things I did was to uh, work on a, a new kind of package for Pepsi, which uh, ultimately became the first two liter plastic bottle for soft drinks. And, uh, That became one of the foundational businesses that uh, Pepsi got into years ahead of Coca-Cola. And the reason we did was because I uh, had a a market research experience, uh, both my MBA uh, as well as working in the market research department of of Pepsi. The the first task that I had my small organization work on was what was called an extended in-home use product test a consumer test and we went to 550 homes and we delivered to those homes every week for nine weeks uh, a selection of soft drinks that they could choose from and they could buy them from us they got a discount price on it and what we discovered at the end of nine weeks was not just what flavors that people picked but that no matter how much they bought the prior week that their household inventory was empty the next week. And as we thought about that, we said, gee, if soft drinks are that popular, if you find a convenient way to get it into their home, then maybe we shouldn't be uh, focused on just the the small bottle packages we were selling, we and Coca-Cola were selling at that time, six and a half ounce bottles, 12 ounce bottles, but we should find a way to build much bigger bottles. And that's what led to the development of the plastic bottle. And it was the first major marketing program that uh, we put into place after I became uh, vice president of marketing. Well, it turned out to be an overwhelming success because not only did we sell more soft drinks, but because I had been out working as a salesman, resetting shelves as well in supermarkets, I realized there was a huge opportunity to build a different kind of uh, shelves for these large sized bottles. Uh, I realized the opportunity of having off shelf displays. And the most important thing was, I had learned that beverages like soft drinks and beer and dairy products, that the only sales records that the big chain stores had uh, were these uh, tickets that were um, transactions directly with the salesman. And that the majority of this marketing information that supermarkets use was coming from what they called warehouse withdrawals, meaning the majority of the products they sold in these supermarkets were going through their warehouses, but soft drinks weren't. And I knew, because I'd been out on the route trucks, uh, that on a hot summer day, that we could sell an entire truckload of beverages in one store. Uh, No one else knew that in the supermarket business because there was no record of sales Uh, going to the warehouse so that they could track how much uh, beverage was actually being sold on a hot summer day uh, through an individual store. And so the combination of the two-liter plastic bottle, which we were the first to develop with um, DuPont, uh, plus uh, redesigning the beverage displays in the stores, plus uh, there was a new technology that is just becoming available Um, called the universal product code. We know it today as the barcode. And so we got Pepsi to become the first consumer product in America to actually put a barcode on the label of our two liter plastic bottles. And so this enabled us to be able to uh, let the chain stores accurately know how many two liter plastic bottles of Pepsi beverages were being sold. Then I had to sell the idea to the chains. We had to go to the buyers and explain to them why two liter plastic bottle was so important because they could see the sales figures. But we had to get it in a way that would really register with them because there are 40,000 different products in a supermarket. So the pitch we came up with, uh, and I remember going in and making our first presentation to a a chain called Stop and Shop in Boston. And I said, uh, we're your new bank. And they said, what do you mean you're our new bank? You're you're a soft drink company you're not a bank. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. Uh, uh, Here are the sales records, you have them now, they're being reported by the universal product code. And it turns out that uh, by the time you pay us for the beverage, uh, that we have turned over five times in the store. So we are actually like a bank for you because we give you this incredible leverage of cash. And they said, well, that's amazing. And so we used that premise in order to get them to agree to put in additional merchandising equipment into the stores. And uh, we did all of this um, almost two and a half years before Coca-Cola recognized the opportunity. Now, because when I was at the advertising marketing agency, I had worked on the Coca-Cola account and I knew from the AC Nielsen uh, tracking surveys that Coke measured physical bottles, the little six and a half ounce bottles. But it turned out that in a a plastic bottle, you actually had in the two liter plastic bottle the equivalent of about 64 ounces. So we convinced AC Nielsen that they shouldn't be tracking us by physical bottle. Uh, They should be tracking us by uh, eight ounce equivalents because we actually made our profit on selling liquid ounces. So they reformatted Nielsen just for us. They didn't change it for Coke. We just said, just do it for us. And they started tracking our market share on eight ounce equivalents. Well, it doesn't take a lot of 64 ounce, you know, two liter bottles to start to get an incredible leverage in terms of the number of ounces. So after two and a half years, AC Nielsen awards Pepsi Cola Company uh, the award for the fastest growing consumer product that they'd ever measured. And Coca-Cola comes back to them and said, what are you talking about? We look at the Nielsen books. We don't see this incredible growth you're giving Pepsi credit for. And they said, yeah, because you've never changed. You've always asked us to track the little tiny six and a half ounce bottles. Pepsi switched several years ago with the introduction of the two liter plastic bottle to having us track eight ounce equivalents. And Coke said, oh my God. And of course, as soon as they converted over and they saw what was happening with our eight ounce equivalent two liter bottles they you know quickly introduced the two liter bottle well by that time uh, our market share was growing you know exceptionally fast and we were going from being outsold 10 to 1 in 50 percent of the company all of a sudden we were rapidly catching up to coke and then we followed that campaign with something called the pepsi challenge uh, which was a consumer campaign and by (laughs) um, 1978 Uh, I was made marketing vice president in 1970. Uh, By 1978, Pepsi had passed Coca-Cola and was the largest selling consumer packaged good in America. So the lesson there is uh, don't assume that just doing things the way they've been done better is going to lead to success. Uh, If you're a small competitor competing with a a giant company, Coca-Cola, in those days was regarded as the most valuable consumer brand in the world, uh, you've got to change the ground rules. And in our case, uh, we changed the ground rules and a lot of the insights came from uh, the opportunity I had to work as a trainee, you know, driving a Pepsi truck, working in supermarkets, you know, working in bottling plants and things of that sort. So sometimes things that don't seem like uh, they have much to do with anything that's going to be important in your future if you are curious and you observe well and you're willing to work hard, uh, can often become the, the foundation for changing the ground rules.
1: Well, I love how he finishes that by saying when you're competing against uh, the most valuable consumer brand in the world, you've got to change the ground rules. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you have to really, you know, sort of change everything you're doing don't you you gotta you gotta if you're doing the same thing there's no way you're gonna make any dot of difference yeah indeed in that sort of environment um so what do we like about that one yeah look i think one of the things that i stand out for me is that it's a series of anecdotes right so you have the anecdote about his market research you know there's you know there were sort of the the anecdote about bringing the two liter bottle in um and, and then how you record that, you know, through the A.C. Nielsen, uh, you know, there's a, you know, a recording of, of sales. Uh, of course, there's the element of the barcode in there. Like, there's, there's a number of different uh, anecdotes that sort are of told. So it sort of shows that a story doesn't have to just be one anecdote. You know, you can actually put together a series of anecdotes, and together they're making your bigger point. Yeah, which he did very well. And that's one of the things
1: that I liked about it was he had a really clear point. Well, two, two clear points. Uh, around that series of, of anecdotes. One of them around the the need to change the ground rules and also the fact that some of the insights that he got came from the time when he was packing shelves, driving trucks and
0: putting up signs on roofs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now in terms of where you'd use it, what do you reckon? Well, again, it goes back to the overall
1: theme that we're talking about for this podcast, which is think differently mm-hmm. and, and uh, create insights. And I love some of the insights. First insight from the market research which is pretty much that people are going to drink as much of your soft drink as you put in front of them. And that led to the two-liter bottle. Bit of a scary, um,
0: scary thought, insight. really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure that's changed these days. Or maybe it hasn't. The inside hasn't changed, but maybe drinking habits have changed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, so to me, this is, uh, this is a classic disruption story. Right. Yeah. So if, if you were to retell this, it'd be I could imagine someone sort of saying, Look, look, we're up against this competitor. I mean, they're bigger, they're better, they're all over the place. Um, let me share with you how Pepsi really caught up with Coca Cola in the US. Yeah. And then I'd tell this story, right? Yep. It's um you know, it's one of those ones it's good to have in your back pocket. I agree. So there's a lot of
1: disruption stories that people commonly use, and, and this is not one of them. And I think this is uh, so that, you know, Kodak, Kodak is a Kodak classic, and yeah. uh, Uber, uh, uh, Amazon, uh, Google, this is a fantastic disruption story. And the others are a bit hackneyed, you know, in that they, 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 they tend Used to be over and over. And over. So, so this is an additional one you could put in your pocket. I think it'd be very valuable. And one way to make this story even better, and you know, it was very well told, but if you're using it specifically focused on it as a disruption story, then you could, you could potentially make it uh, substantially shorter and, and punchier.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things I did love through the whole thread of this is that John was uh, sort of making reference back to his first story. Yeah. Right. So, you know, if you think, think about that first story as a connection story... You really get an insight into his character. You know, one of these—he's obviously hardworking. He's the sort of guy who likes to be out with the people. You know, likes to get his hands dirty. Um, Takes a chance. Yeah, all that. See, we learn that about John just from his first story, without but, him saying it. Of course, without him saying it. But then the next thing is you start to weave in uh, references back to that story. I think it's—you uh, know—it it's, makes it very powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. very cool. Right, that's that's uh, story two. By far the best
2: a uh, storyteller for turning a, a story into uh, an inspirational uh, message to people in the company, outside the company, was working with Steve Jobs. And when S- S- Steve was uh, recruiting me to Apple, uh, we spent five months getting to know one another every weekend, he was on the west coast of the US, I was on the east coast, and he would either come west or I'd go east every, every weekend for five, five months And the reason why he wanted to recruit me, because I knew nothing about computers. And uh, even Steve wasn't an engineer. So he was brilliant, but he was totally self-taught. And Steve had this idea that the future of computing uh, back in the early 1980s, that the future uh, wasn't just going to be uh, less expensive, smaller, uh, more powerful, uh, computers, uh, and that's what most of Silicon Valley thought. Almost everybody in Silicon Valley thought this, except Steve. It was called Moore's Law, and that the computers would get, you know, increasingly more powerful, and it would cost less money, and and uh, so they would continue to make computers and sell them to business people, and to government, and to engineers. Um, but they weren't rethinking, you know. So, so what can a computer really be? And Steve said, no, no, you're all wrong. He said. The future of computer is not selling millions of computers to the people who are already buying them. Uh, But there's a market out there that is so much more exciting and important, and that is to sell computers to non-technical people who know nothing about computers uh, and make the computers so easy to use uh, and so seductive Uh, and give it so many capabilities that aren't in today's computers back in the early 1980s, like the ability to use graphics and media and uh, to enable these non-technical people to do creative things. And he said, if we do it well, that in the future, we'll be selling billions of uh, computer-enabled consumer devices, not, you know, millions of computers. And When Steve came up with those ideas, uh, Silicon Valley laughed at him and they used to call it the the Steve Jobs reality distortion field. (laughs) They said that Steve, you know, you're trying to violate all the laws of physics. You don't know what you're talking about. Why would anybody want these machines? Uh, And uh, he was ridiculed. And then even more so when he recruited me to come in from the soft drink industry to be the CEO. And they said, why would you want somebody who knows nothing about computers to come in he said because i need someone to teach me about consumer marketing i need to understand how do you build computers into a big major brand
0: that's such an insight that story i mean because i must admit when i remember when john scully took over apple i was an apple user and and I thought to myself, why? why? Why are they getting some guy from Pepsi to um, take over the reins uh, there at Apple? And this really does make a lot of sense, you know, that they were, Jobs was positioning the company to be this consumer brand, and he needed to shift the company, he needed different people, right? And I thought, wow, that really does make a lot of sense. Um, very
1: interesting. Yeah, cuz he finished by saying uh, that the reason that Steve Jobs wanted him was to build Apple into a uh, a big major brand, consumer brand,
0: and well, you look where it is today. Um Jobs, yeah, there was jobs done. Jobs really. done, yeah. I did find it also very interesting, you know, that they took 5 months of meeting each other on weekends. That's a phenomenal effort, big investment. But, but it just shows you too that, you know, you do have to you know, when you're making that decision, you know, you really have to get to know people and you know how hopeless interviews are, you know, as a way of getting a sense of capabilities. and well, it's certainly our experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you you sort of really, um, it's an example of, you know, maybe that sort of effort. Of course, the, you know, the story you got in your back of your mind, and this would be really interesting to find out from John, you know, like what actually happened in that period where the board made the decision to exit Jobs out of the business, right? That would be a really interesting bit of information to understand as a an
1: expansion of that story. Yeah, and so another one about making that even better is that during that process, did Steve Jobs actually say, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Yeah, well,
0: I want to know about that too. So, yeah, but it's a simple story. You know, if you were to share that in terms of having that insight to take a computer company and shift it over and sort of say no no we're not just going to sell computers to people who buy computers we're eventually going to sell technology for consumers you know who don't know anything about technology Um, that is a massive shift and it's a great little story to have in your back pocket
1: yeah totally and the fact that the whole industry thought that steve jobs was crazy to have this idea. What do they call it? The Steve Jobs reality distortion field? Yeah,
0: he's renowned for that, yeah.
1: And so, again, the whole theme of this episode and all the stories that John tells are about thinking differently and having insight. Mm. And, and well, I guess the thinking differently doesn't come much bigger than reimagining a computer company into a, a, a consumer goods company.
0: Yeah, that's right. I do wonder, how did Jobs sort of take himself out of that world of computing right you know he would have been surrounded by all the silicon valley types etc sort of zoom himself out so that he can sort of see this broader opportunity there mm. um, because i think that's a, a phenomenal skill really isn't it yep and just uh, another one on that
1: is that I'd, I'd love to dig deeper on the thought process that john went through in making his decision to join apple to be part of that process yeah that's a follow-up interview <laughs> well of course we only we only had the the one hour and so that's the 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 third story about the the insight that Steve Jobs um, about turning Apple into a consumer brand company and recognizing that he needed to change the people essentially change the top people and bring in people with like John Scully with the expertise in consumer brands so what might seem a, a crazy idea in hindsight been a big turning point. So the fourth story that John shared with us was about a very pivotal moment in Apple's history, but also in the history of advertising. And I'll let John take it away.
2: And then the other was to work with Steve to help build the uh, marketing and branding campaign to launch the Macintosh, which we did at the uh, 1984 Super Bowl. So
1: and did you have a hand in that ad? You know, like well,
2: uh, I, I worked, you know, Steve and I both worked uh, very closely. Uh, with, with with the team at shia Day. Um, and um, yeah, no, I remember we were sitting around on October 19th, 1983. We were still months away from launching the Mac. And the cover on Business Week on that day said the winner is IBM. And we hadn't even introduced our product yet. So we were sitting around, we said, well, we got to do something that will just wake people up. That, that the game isn't over before the game is really started so we started to think about well what are the things that are going to happen in 1984 uh, that could have real attention and one of the things we came up with well George Orwell said 1984 you know is, is going to be an amazing year he said that back in 1948 you know uh, when he said we were going to be controlled by the thought police and you know, the world was gonna look a lot like it looks in parts of the world right now. As a matter of fact, <laughs> uh, a lot of invasion of privacy. But in any event, um, so we worked with um, Lee Clow and Steve Hayden, the two heads of the um, client creative team. And we, we said, we need something that is just gonna blow people's minds when they see it. So they came back about 10 days later, showed us at the storyboards, Uh, which was the storyboards for the now famous 1984 commercial, which is a group of uh, uh, zombie-looking men in pajama suits uh, marching uh, in a line as they headed into a large auditorium. And as they sit in rows in the auditorium, they look up at a big screen. And there on the screen is the Thought Police uh, talking head, saying in the future, we will control your lives and you will do what we say. And uh, you know this sort of monotone type of speech. In the meantime, it cuts to uh, this beautiful young girl. Everything else is in a sepia grayscale, except for this beautiful young girl uh, running down the aisle of this large auditorium with the men in zombie suits, uh, sitting there watching the big screen. And she is swinging a hammer, as you would see in this, in Uh, field and track. And as she swings the hammer and releases it, you see it going in slow motion through the air, and it hits the screen of the thought police talking head, and the screen explodes. And then you see uh, on this now white screen, just light, uh, is the crawl of type that says on January 24th, 1984, Apple will introduce Macintosh, and 1984 won't be like 1984. When we showed the commercial to our board of directors, uh, there was dead silence. <laughs> and they all looked at me because I was expected to be the adult in the room. Everyone else was in their early t- uh, 20s. The average age of the Macintosh uh, division was 22 years old. So they all turned to me and they said, well, you're not c- going to really run that thing, are you? And I said, absolutely. I said, this is going to be a commercial that will get people's attention. And it, it sets an expectation that the Macintosh is like something they've never seen before. They said, yeah, but you don't even show a computer. You don't even talk about what it is. You don't explain any, how powerful the technology is. They said, that isn't the point. The point is to let people know that the future of computers is nothing like, you know, what it has been up until now. So anyway, the, we were instructed by the board to go and see if we could sell the advertising time. Um, and uh, we didn't try that hard because we eventually, uh um, we spent five hundred million dollars. Uh, excuse me, five hundred thousand um, dollars making this commercial. There's a lot of special effects in it, which nobody had ever spent five hundred thousand dollars to make a commercial before, except for Pepsi and Coke, who made very expensive commercials. And we had uh, uh, paid just under a million dollars for the 62nd time on the Super Bowl, you know, for our commercial, which they thought was an outrageous amount of money to spend on, you know, one minute for a commercial. But anyway, the commercial ran. Uh, It so captivated the Super Bowl audience, it's the biggest audience on television at that time, uh, that the commercial was run over and over for free by television station after television station around the country. We estimated we got $45 million of free advertising. But in the meantime, it put Apple on the planet. And suddenly, Apple was looked at as, you know, there is a different future than people ever imagined with a personal computer. Most people didn't even know what a personal computer was back in 1984. So uh, again, it was a matter of what do you have to do to change the ground rules when a small competitor is competing against a giant competitor?
0: You know, when this ad came out, I, I, I didn't see it straight away. You know, it was one of those ones I heard on the grapevine because, of course, in Australia you don't get to see the Super Bowl ads. We got to see those replays that John talked about um, that sort of of had that ripple effect that was going on around the world. And that's where I got to see the ad the first time. And it was such a surprise. Like, it just really got you going, like, what's going on here? You know, and it was a surprising ad do you, do you remember it do you remember when that yeah. sort of happened yeah, yeah. and it, it was in the days where
1: nowadays of course we watch the uh, the super bowl live here in australia and uh, yes. we yeah. get to see all the ads as they uh, as, it as occurs. The, rest of the world occurs and of course we get Paul Zak's analysis afterwards about which ones have the most uh, impact um, the the oxytocin guy and so but back in those days uh, it was very much a replay
0: but yeah that the people were talking about that ad Yeah. But there's some nice, lovely things in this story. Okay. I mean, the one that a couple of things I really like was that uh, there's lots of rich detail in this. John was giving us names of the creatives in Chiat Day. He was giving us dates. He was giving us, um, you know, all those sort of facts and figures that just make stories credible, right? As soon as you hear the facts and figures, you just go, yep, this happened.
1: And the other detail, the, the yeah. on, on the 19th of October, Newsweek ran that. Uh, and IBM the is, wins or whatever, yeah. And, and, and as, an, as a, uh, a catalyst yeah. for them to go, we need to do something big. And so that was a really important detail. I really love that, uh, that. That's a really important part of that story. Yeah.
0: Actually, it just got me thinking, you know, by mentioning, you know, the link to George Orwell, um, you know, to talk about other companies like IBM, what you're doing is you're giving lots of possible links and hooks for the listener to bring in their own experiences right and i think this is one of the other nice things about this story there's there's so much richness in here that it gives those hooks i think the stories do this naturally right um i thought too his recounting of the ad his visual description of the ad was evocative right i could see that ad play out um Pajama suits. I'm not too sure. I can't quite get in my head what a pajama suit is. Was that? Did you stumble on that? Uh, you didn't even hear that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was great. I
1: loved it. Absolutely loved it. And one of the things that I didn't realise until he described it in words was the fact that the girl is the only thing in colour. Yes. So even though I, you know, when he said it, it was yeah, of course. But if I was describing that ad,
0: you wouldn't have picked that out. No. 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 It was good. What, what about how you use this story? Like, what where? Well, uh, very quickly, of course, the
1: overall theme, think differently. And again, this ad was uh, particularly for a technology company, yep. a computer company, to think very differently about their advertising, uh, really
0: important. Yeah. I've, one of the things that struck me is that if you were sitting with a group of executives and you really wanted to encourage them t- towards a big bang approach... Rather than incremental, you could tell this story, right? Um, if they were teetering on the edge, which way we should go? Because, of course, there's lots of good reasons to do incremental for certain things, but others, you kind of just whittle away your impact. Whereas these guys put it in one ad for a million bucks back in 1984. I mean, that's a lot of money now, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think that would be a. a an evocative, you could even show the video of the ad. I mean, it would be something that could help sway a conversation, I reckon, in terms of which way you went. Yep. And for me, another application is
1: sticking to your guns. So the board have said, you can't run that. Um, it doesn't say anything about the technology. It doesn't say how good it is. It doesn't say what it's going to be able to do. It costs a lot of money. And please go and sell... The one million dollar advertising time, and we'll get a little bit back. Yeah, <laughs> and John's, oh, we didn't try too hard, and they ran it anyway. So again, uh, using that story as an example of folks, there's times where you just need to stick to your guns. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. Right, yeah. Well, let's get on to our next. one well, no, sorry, no, you got one more thing. There's there's one more. Yes, in that, Apple is famous for focusing on not on on the what they do, but on the why they do it and that ad i think sets the scene it's not the what it's the why we do it and we're doing it so that 1984 won't be like 1984. so for me another application is explaining the the importance of explaining why and and really getting appeal from your audience
2: i've been fortunate enough to have um, been around some really smart people who have thought about things in a different way so for example i remember sitting around with Uh, Bill Gates one evening with with Steve Jobs when I recently joined Apple. This was back in 1983, and Bill was talking about how he was going to change the world with software, and up until that time, uh, all of the profits, uh, the only way that that computer companies were paid was on the basis of selling hardware. He used to call it iron, selling iron, Uh, and they gave the software away as a customer service, because they made the money on the, on the iron. And Bill said, no, that's not the future. The future is going to be that microprocessors will enable all kinds of inexpensive computers to be made and the value is in the software. So Bill invented something called shrink wrap software. And he invented an operating system that could be licensed out to anybody who wanted to use these new microprocessors and be able to build computers. So that's taking the same uh, facts uh, just like Steve Jobs said, no, the future is going to be for non-technical people that do amazing creative things. Everyone had the same facts who was in the computer industry as Steve had. Everyone had the same facts that Bill Gates had. But both of those geniuses you know, interpreted the facts in different ways. And so Steve um, used to tell me, he said, uh, he calls it zooming. He said, you got to zoom out, look beyond the boundaries of your industry, and see things that are happening outside your industry, connect the dots. And then when you connect the dots, you zoom in. So you zoomed out to connect the dots, you zoom in and you simplify.
0: There you go. John's just answered my question. Uh, Steve Jobs uses a zooming out technique to uh, see the bigger picture. Connect the dots, then zooms back in to make the changes in the industry. Of course, still seems like a supernatural power of some sort, but you know, at least there's a little bit of methodology there that uh, makes sense to me. But what do you think? What of that story? What jumps to mind for you, Mark? And and when you heard the Bill Gates story? Well, uh, one of the things for me was that Bill Gates it was the same as Steve Jobs.
1: He he completely reconceptualized his industry. Yeah, yeah, and right. I, I hadn't I. I hadn't thought about it in that way, so I found that a really uh, insightful um, experience
0: that john was uh, John was sharing there. yeah you know, I guess with any of these you know re- industry redefining companies you know we're seeing it now of course with you know Google and amazon and and uh, or Apple again, if you like, and through all this um you're going to have to have this you're going to have these if if everyone's going one way, you need to go another way. Um, we're sort of seeing this around privacy, I think. Um in just how different companies are dealing with that as well. Um, now in terms of, this is a simple story, right? It's um, it's one where, you know, you can share that story as I can imagine people sort of going, oh, I was actually uh, listening to John Scully talk about uh, a time when he was sitting down and you could tell it from that perspective and then just talk about what, uh, you know, sort of uh, Gates said for example. Um, and also, how do you go about
1: disrupting industry and, and the Steve Jobs experience yeah, uh, or his methods, you know, zoom out, connect the dots, zoom back in and simplify. Yeah, uh, You need to be able to do that. You need to yeah. be able
0: to see the, see the bigger picture. Yeah, actually, a lot of companies suffer from this. I've seen businesses where they just are t- so internally focused. They wouldn't even know what the company next door did, let alone the broader... Industry or, or beyond that.
1: And the episode last week where we shared the story of Goldcorp and Rob McEwen's sharing all of his uh, geographical data with the world, doing something completely unheard of
0: to get great results. So, yeah. uh, again, taking, up.
1: Yeah, taking the bigger picture, connecting the dots. Yeah,
0: yeah. Now, in terms of uh, where you'd use this, I mean, obviously, the, we've talked about it, think differently. I think that's probably the, the key thing. Um, I don't know. What about making it better? Well, it's a simple one. I don't it, know. It, it is. It's, it's, it's like it hits the mark, doesn't it?
1: And it's a it's it's an effective story because you know what? It just makes me want to ask more questions. I want to know more, and it's one of the when you're when you're telling a story, that's a really good effect to have. Yeah. where people are going, tell me more. Yeah, and so that was that was a really con, uh, compact story, but. Uh, left me
0: wanting more. Excellent. As Monty Python would say, it left me only hungry for more. <laughs> Radio. Well, we've just we've just listened to some uh, great stories, five stories
1: from a guy who's seen some of the big turning points in the 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 in the tech and and the consumer goods world over the last well
0: fifty years. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, John, if we just uh, <laughs> gave away ages there. Um, so uh that's been fantastic and you know, it's given us everyone you know again a few more stories to put in your back pocket and that's what this podcast is all about is helping you build your repertoire right so of course repertoires are not built just by listening to stories you guys have got to go out and make these stories your own and tell them right to make a business point get out there we'd love to hear of course uh, how you go with that um send 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 us a message we'd and tell us a story about what happened. We'd love that.
1: And, and to help you put these stories into your story bank, in the show notes we'll have time markers for in the when each of the stories that that John shared. And I guess I'd just like to finish by saying um, thank you very much to John uh, for giving up his time and exp- and sharing some of these amazing experiences that he had. We spent an hour on the on the phone and. Uh, we couldn't obviously use the entire hour, so we've taken these five pieces, but uh, he was incredibly generous. So, John, thank you so much for sharing that and, and helping people across the world use use find and
0: use new stories that will help them be better business communicators. Well, I think that's a good time to wrap it up. So, thanks a lot, everyone, for um, coming along this, on, on this ride of our last episode for 2019. Have a a wonderful break. Uh, Happy holidays, as they say. That's the politically correct way of saying it. Absolutely. And we'll we'll be back uh, in 2020. Seems like a big number, 2020, but we'll be back in 2020 to help you put your stories to work and build that story repertoire. So until then, have a great break.